Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Teacher's Point of View. Uh, in this episode we have Judith Johnson who's an English teacher in an inner London city school and uh, she talks about her journey and the obstacles she's had in her teaching career. Um, she, she's an lo absolutely lovely lady, I mean I've known her since 2017 and helped her find a couple of jobs myself and um, she, she absolutely loves education and she loves making a difference to, to her kids and um, education is what it's all about, it's why people get into teaching is to make a difference to children and she just loves it, she loves what she does and she loves making a difference to kids um, every single day uh, and, and we need more teachers like Judith in the profession. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, thanks. Hi everyone, I've got uh, Judith Johnson here today. Um, Judith and I have known each other for three years and um, it's been a remarkable journey, obviously, getting to know Judith over the last few years. And she's, she's quite happy, well, she said she's happy to come on to the podcast today. So, Judith, thank you for coming on and uh, welcome to the Teacher's Point of View podcast. Um, if, you you can, if you can just sort of uh, explain to everyone, like, what, sort of a little bit about you, your journey to teaching, why you got into teaching, that'd be great. Okay, so I've always wanted to be, I'm an English teacher, I've always wanted to be an English teacher, but I didn't pursue that career first. I went into banking and then I went into housing and then I just felt quite dissatisfied that I wasn't following my own pathway, my dreams. So I then decided to go into teaching. So I started off as a learning mentor and then went into schools and then from there had encouragement from a really good teacher and she said, there's so much more you could be doing than what you're doing right now. And I, I started laughing and she was like, no, no, no. Like, I said, oh, I can't afford it. You know, I have to go back and get a degree and all that. She said, do it. And I did it. And I, I did it. And I'm, I'm on that journey and I, I love it. Fantastic. I mean, just so everyone's aware, what, what year did you like uh, qualify? 2011. And talk us through your journey. So you've qualified, you start your career in teaching, um, what kind of school did you start in um, and like where are you now and how have you got to this point? Okay so the starting off point was I started off at a school in Enfield as an NQT. I stayed there for three years. I was there and had really good tutelage. My mentor was absolutely fantastic. When I think about it now she gave me up with not get me up, but she set me up with the things that I needed to progress even further into the teaching career. Like she set me up really fine because she saw my potential from my first teaching at um, the school. And um, that first time we had Ofsted who came into my lesson. This was the first time being Ofsteded. And um, I was an NQT at the time. Anyway, he's coming. I've gone back for feedback. And he says to me, um, how long have you been teaching? So I said to him, oh, I'm an NQT. So he said, we shouldn't have done this lesson. I said, okay, but he says, I want to tell you this anyway. It was good without standing practices. And I just felt like just hearing that alone, first year of teaching, I think that just set me up real nice. And I just felt like I'm doing what I should be, I should be doing. So I stayed at the school in Enfield, which was a church school for three years. And then I travelled across the Middle East and went to Dubai to see what it was going to be like to earn that tax-free money. That was the incentive. And um, when I got there, it was a shock. In what way? Worked, huh? In what way? Well, I worked in an Emirati school because I felt that 
going into someone else's country, I didn't just want to go into an international school. I wanted to actually go and see what the Indigenous people were like. And um, so I went into an Emirati school. So it had two, it was a hybrid for English curriculum and Arabic curriculum. And so it was the first time working in a school where there was a boy side and a girl side. And the it was a different experience for me as a black woman. It was a different experience from my white counterpart because I had the boys who couldn't not associate me with their nanny. So there was a lack of respect for me as a black woman. And um, I found that really quite hard to deal with. And I just felt that if the school at the time knew that black teachers would face this, why, why would they let us come there and be subjected to that? Because I just felt that, why am I suffering racism in, an, in another country? It's not even my country. Yeah, the tax-free money, but on the psyche, it, it, it just was horrendous, really. And then because I am insightful, you know, you look beyond the superficial and um, there was just a lot of dead behind the eyes, like a lot of workers were dead behind the eyes because of the experiences that they were experiencing by the Emiratis. And um, I just felt like I couldn't fulfil my two-year contract there. And additionally, they also had teachers that were from not London school, so outside of London. So you've got though really, really outside of London and they themselves weren't used to black teachers neither. So you had that as well. So as well as from the Emiratis, you actually had it from teacher counterparts who looked at you like you were less than them. And I just felt like I, I couldn't do it. Maybe, you know, if I was younger or whatever, yeah, but it wasn't worth it for me. For me, but I know that there's some people there that are still there that have had lovely experiences, you know. But just for me, it wasn't right for me. So then, yeah. so you came back. <laughs> so I came back, and then I was on the way to work, and I swear, phone call came through. But anyway, I came back. I wasn't secure, so I was looking for jobs and I went through an agency and I ended up at a school that I was picked for, um, another school in Enfield by a previous head of year or deputy head and she saw my name come up and she was like, I'll go there. But that school, a comprehensive school, was the worst school that I've ever worked at. There was just no behaviour management. The kids were out of control and the way that they wanted to speak to you was just unacceptable. And for myself at that school, a student had grabbed me and scratched me. And when I went to say that, you know, this is what's taken place, the assistant head teacher said to me, we don't see any scratches on your skin, so we don't, we don't believe that she scratched you. <laughs> it's like, I just started in September, by February I was gone. Oh, wow. Yeah. I just think that it happens. It just happens. I think sometimes you you go where you just need to go and then you see. And then I spoke to you, I believe. Yeah. Yes, that, that day in 2017. And I was having all kinds of issues, as you know, like we were supposed to get an interview and I had to cancel because my mum 
had cancer and we were like, no, you can still do this. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, because it's just so much. And but I, I prepared the lesson already. And then you were like, no, no, go on, Jude, if you can do that. And I, so I went and I was at Holloway for however long that term was. Yeah. I don't know, six months, four months, something like that. Yeah. And that was... Yeah, and so that was a really good experience. It was a really good experience at their school. It was, it, it had, like, all schools have their own issues. Like, there's, there's no school that's free from any kind of issue. But, again, I just found that that school as well, behaviour wasn't under control. And I, ju- I just felt that in order for you to be able to be an effective teacher, the behaviour management needs to be under control and it needs to be school-led by the, the top down. You know, and I, and I just don't think it should be that they only listen to the top, the top, everyone, all educators should be able to be able to get behaviour under control. And then had an operation, had two operations. I was out of action for a bit, getting my health back. And then I called you just out of the blue. I was like, you know what, I'm going to call teach. I called you out of the blue. I said, I'm looking for a school in a certain borough or a certain inner London. And you was like, I've got the, the right place for you. And I've been there three years. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a remarkable journey for you, hasn't it? Um, I know Judith personally quite well. And obviously, like, like she said, we've known each other for about three years. And um, she's been on one hell of a journey like she's had a lot of challenges against her and um at every stage she's been able to overcome it i mean she's had times where she didn't know she was going to pull out uh she didn't know she's going to make it into work at one point <laughs> and uh yeah she's she's had to battle some hard times to, to continue her career in teaching i mean like with every like challenge that you faced you because you have you, you have faced quite a few difficulties haven't you um, sure. yeah. with obviously your mom's cancer and then your operation you were quite well and um, what what gave you the drive to get back into teaching? I love teaching. Like uh, it's it's a vocation. It, you have to have the passion and the tenacity for teaching because teaching is is not an easy profession to be in. And I think you just have to know that you want to make a difference in a young person's life. And being an English teacher as a core subject, I'm definitely making a difference. And I think with teaching, you have to be yourself. You have to, you know, there's this thing that you have to have this facade and you have to be this way. But children are very receptive to individuals that are in front of them and and they're like truth detectors. Like they can sniff you out whether you're for them or against them. And for myself personally, being a mother has also helped and having children in the education arena as well has definitely helped my cause as well because I was able to understand that sometimes when a child is presenting difficulties to you, you have to look beyond the difficulties. You have to go to the root and see what it is, why they're acting out that way. So I'll give you an example. So at school, we have to meet and greet the students by the door. So that gives you a time to just check their uniforms and to make sure that they're presentable. So I have my hands by the door, so they just can't walk in like, they have to say good morning or good afternoon and then they come in but that gives me a time to look at the student that's coming into my room and so I'll pull a child out of the line and I'll let everyone else go in and I'll say to them I said is this the first time that we're seeing each other and they'll say yes 
So I said, so what happened? Why you're presenting yourself to me like this? And they'll be like, oh, I had a bad lesson and miss or sir or da da da, whatever. But I tell them that was that lesson. Don't bring that energy into my lesson because we're all starting off and, you know, we want to have a great lesson. So you're not going to disrupt my classroom. So you stay outside. You know, usually they stay for about 30 seconds, give themselves to compose themselves, get themselves together and then be able to come in and have an enjoyable English lesson. So those are, you know, those things, because I'm perceptive, like I, I know if something has gone wrong in a previous lesson, because you can just tell by energy, you know? Absolutely. Like, so just talk me through the challenges that you've had. I mean, you mentioned in, in the Middle East you had difficulties. Um, obviously, you felt as an ethnic minority, it was challenging, right? I mean, do you feel, I think, with everything that's happened this year, especially like with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, do you find that there were challenges naturally as an ethnic minority compared to people that were the majority? Absolutely. I think not just within the teaching profession, but like I said, I've had other professions as well. Colour is always a barrier. It, it doesn't matter that they say that it's not because um, you have conscious and unconscious bias. And with unconscious bias, some people don't, that's why it's called unconscious. They don't recognise what they're doing. But sometimes conscious, unconscious bias does really roll into conscious bias. And sometimes you, you are, people are aware of what they're doing. Um, I, as you know, because I got you to sign my form so that I could do my master's. Do you remember? I asked yeah. you to, <laughs> to be a referee for me. And um, so I've completed my master's. I did it in two years. And it was supposed to be a year, but I did it in two years because I had serious health issues. And even having that master's, that paperwork behind me, doors are still closed. They're still closed. And it doesn't matter that my paperwork is recognised and all the attributes and achievements that I have made through teaching, I still am stuck like that at times, you know. And that's quite difficult because it should be on merit, it should be on what you're presenting, it should be on your accolades or, you know, the fact that it's cost X amount of money to do a master's, that moves you into the assistant head bracket. But because I'm considered other, I haven't been able to penetrate that yet. Is it something that you wanted to do within your teaching career? Sorry? Is it something you wanted to do within your teaching career? Um, well, I don't know really, because in the beginning, yes, obviously everyone's ambitious and I've had my children, so I can just really move into my teaching um, career without any hindrance because I'm not I've already had kids so I'm not going to stop and take maternity leave and stuff like that so I just felt that I needed the masters to see what it could do for me so I viewed it as like an experiment really because I know what it does but I needed to know what it was going to do for me and how it was going to help me navigate into senior leadership roles and if it was valued because I've got it I'm going to leave that open because I don't know, but just for me personally, I know that it's still hard. Even with everything that's gone on at this moment, Black Lives Matter, the outcry, it's still quite difficult. And I just think that we 
going back to school was even more difficult because we were going back on uncertain times. We didn't know what what we was what you're going to find, what it's going to be like because we was already had to go into isolation, obviously from COVID when we locked down from March. So then the Black Lives Matter has happened, and yes, the school sent out things that we need to do, and obviously it's about educating the young people. But I didn't want to regurgitate the death of George Floyd. What I wanted to do was get my students to understand terms like discrimination, privilege, you know, what is the 2010 Equalities Act and how does it help you? You know, what is prejudice? Have you experienced bias? Have you been biased yourself? I needed to do those terms and I I gave a list of these terms so that the young people can educate themselves as well. Yes, the media is flooding you with the, the knee on the neck, absolutely. But I didn't want to do that because you need to know what bias is. What is, what is privilege? You know, I, didn't, I just said, what is privilege? And have you experienced privilege before? And it was really quite enlightening what came back that, you know, most people, regardless of colour, have experienced some type of prejudice or discrimination, as, as young as they are, because, you know, these are secondary school children. So within their own cohorts and with their own social groups, they would experience all of that. But I think it's about educating, not just because I'm a teacher of English that I'm just going to do that. It's about educating the masses. You need to know what the 2010s Equality Act is. You know, you need to know these things. And so I just felt I had a duty to, to do that. And then I shared, obviously, I shared it with the English department as well. If they wanted, they could have that as well. And, you know, because they hadn't thought about it like that. You know, they hadn't thought about these terms and how they relate to certain ethnic minorities who are experiencing these things. So like I said, I didn't mind sharing my work because I think it's about educating. I'm an educator, not just a teacher. And there's a big difference, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so in those days where you felt that the, it, the, the odds were against you and it, was, it wasn't going to progress in the way that you wanted or for whatever reason, and, and whether it be for your... Color, for the colour of your skin or um, just in terms of the way that the schools were set. I mean, like how how difficult for, was it for you not to just think, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. What is the point? How many days did you want to quit? I've never wanted to quit teaching because I love it. Like I'm, I'm real passionate about teaching. Like I, I just feel... Like I said, it's it's you can't just it can't just be a job for you. You have to love what you do because if you don't love you, you will get tired getting up every day because it is a hard slug. You know, it is really, 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 really hard. So there was never a time when I felt that oh, I'm going to come out of teaching, maybe secondary education, and just manoeuvre maybe into university or college because I can do, but. They don't pay as well. <laughs> at the level that I'm at, I will be taking a loss. So, you know, that's not for now. Um, I just feel that it's not about... Okay, so the colour of my skin is the colour of my skin. I cannot change that. I cannot change who I am. I cannot change the ambition that I have or the love that I have for teaching. And it's about giving the students 
in inner London because I'm an inner London person and I work in an inner London school and I live in inner London. It is about giving back to the students because it's easy when you're teaching to then say, well, you know what, I can go into a more prestigious school or I can go into private school or I could take those skills and manage that way. But for me, if the, the kids need someone who's riding for them, who has their best interests at heart, who wants them to learn the expectations of doing well so that you can um, benefit in life. Their expectations that they feel that I've come from some silver spoon or, you know, I've actually had this glorious, lovely middle class life. Let's just say it like that. Yeah. But I haven't. Working class, slugged got my degree, you know, went on and did various other things. But I love teaching and I just feel that I am their role model, just like I'm my children's role model. I'm their role model and I, they need to look at me and know that they're able to achieve anything that they want to achieve as long as they, they work hard. I mean, in English, I, you know, what I do is I, they're like, Miss, sometimes we don't know about, you know, the, the degree, how to get the degree, or where, what point it is, or stuff like that. So we actually do like a lesson on how to access college, where you are on the grading system, how to access university. And I talk them through the things that they need to know because these are the skills that are going to equip them for later on in life. You know, and also lots of young people are scared to present in class. They're, they're nervous and whatever. But presentation skills are fundamental because in college you have to present. In university you have to present. In life you have to present. So my thing is if you can get to grips with these skills from now, it will serve you well later on and that's so I, I'm always gearing them up for later on because we're just five years but you've got another two years or and then you've got another three or four years and then you might have another year you know so it's about equipping them with lifelong learning skills as well yeah absolutely <laughs> talk to me about the last seven months then how difficult has it been to be, be a teacher <sighs> oh my days so it's just Listen, so COVID has happened. I'm, I'm vulnerable, so I'm, I'm classified as vulnerable. And um, so that first time when we've heard of COVID in March, I'd already taken the time off to be home because we wasn't, I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, I was, was recovering or have recovered from my operation, but health is so very important. Um, so I went, I, set, I stayed home for a week and then... The following week, I received a letter saying, you've got to stay home anyway. So then I wasn't able to be in school from, from all that time. So I missed out on a lot of things. But we had to then work from home. And that was an adjustment, having to get this work-life balance. Because usually you come home, you're so glad to be home. Like, you're not trying to do no schoolwork now. Schoolwork is invading your life. Like, and all that. And it was quite difficult adjusting. Nice being at home, nice not being in the hustle and bustle, but adjusting and having to do lessons and, and lots of other administrative bits as well. And obviously teaching remotely, you know, as, as, as we did. Um, so it, was, it, was, it wasn't an easy time, only because of the uncertainty of COVID. So then going back in September, obviously 
we only had the six weeks because I think people were under the misconception that teachers were just living life whilst um, everyone else was at home. But actually, we was working harder at home than you are at school because when you're going in, teaching is natural. So you, you already have your lessons. You already know what you're doing. You're just going with the flow of teaching. But being at home, it's a different ball game. So then you had to do more administrative tasks such as completing schemes of learning or completing training, mandatory training. There was just so many different things, attending courses, like having, still having briefing and all those things. Everything was just done um, remotely. So it was difficult. So when the six weeks came, it was real nice just to kind of relax and stuff like that. But then going back, uncertainty because you don't know what to expect. Obviously, with the Black Lives Matter, you don't know what, what, what kind, what's the atmosphere it's going to be that you're walking into. Is there a divide? Like, you just, you, it was so uncertain. Um, and incidents have happened and the way they've been addressed, you know, it's always good to get two sides or both sides of the story. I've already explained to you, but I won't go into that here, about two sides of the story so that you know why people are operating that they are. And I would just say that sometimes senior leaders, they try to please everybody, but a group will always not be happy with an outcome. You know, it's just talking about leadership. And I just feel that we have to have enough insight to know that there's always two sides, but it's cute enough to pick out what's right and what's not right. You know, and I think that what you have to do that, you have to do that because sometimes it's like it's a game that you're playing. And I, it, I, it just feels that you, 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 you do, you get to a certain point and then the goalposts are moved. So then you get to the next point and then the goalpost is moved again. So sometimes it feels like you're always trying to get there and you can't, but not because you don't have what you need. Is because maybe it's not being recognised. And um, I experienced that coming back into the into the school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's important to um, just kind of recognise a couple of things that you've said. One of the things being that you're vulnerable, right? I mean, you've obviously had health issues in the past, and <laughs> obviously you're back in school in September and putting your life at risk every single day going into school. And uh, I think. Obviously, one of the big part, parts of me wanting to do this podcast was to get to make people aware, you know, like we've spoken a lot about NHS over the news and um, mm. a, lot, a lot of clapping that was done every Thursday. But I, I think people are forgetting how much teachers are doing at the moment. You know, you're, you're risking your lives every day on the front line. My sister's having to sort of like avoid coming over to our parents' house and like to, you're, you're making sacrifices every single day to make sure that you can educate the future generation and the future of our economy depends on it, doesn't it? I mean, what would you say to those people that think that you've had the last seven months off? Well, like I've said, you're not a teacher, so you don't know. And it's okay to talk. You know, everyone's always a critic until you're actually doing the job yourself. And I'm going to say that teachers are human beings with families. I mean, whether they're vulnerable, you know, some have small children, some have parents that are elderly, some are just vulnerable within their own selves. And it is scary having to go to school um, and not knowing what you're going to face. So at this moment, 
wearing bubbles and my my bubble my biggest bubble is about 30 maybe the smallest one is 22 so key stage three they stay static so we go to them so they'll stay in the same class all day and as teachers you go to them so there's no regular I don't have a regular teaching room anymore um, so I move around and then for key stage four they move yeah so I'm I teach two times in my old classroom and another two times I teach for year 11s in another classroom. So out of the four lessons, I only teach twice in my classroom. Which four, lessons. Lessons. Huh? four lessons per day. Yeah, no, no, that's four times for the week because it's a, it's a six lesson. It's a six lesson day. So you're moving around all the time and then you have to transition. So when the classes are over, they want you to stand out there in the hallway, moving the kids along. So at transition points or at when it's time to go, break or lunchtime but being vulnerable it's quite difficult I'm not, it's not comfortable standing where there's an, so many kids coming towards you not that they're coming towards me like that but you know they're moving in the direction to go down but it's a lot of traffic you know and you have to weigh up yes the school needs teachers to be there and usher in the kids outside because there's no kids allowed in the school at all during break time or lunchtime. But in saying that as well, I have, I'm, I have my own health issues and so I'm vulnerable also. So I wasn't feeling comfortable having to transition like, like that. So I, I sorted it. Like I had a conversation because as a vulnerable, I have a, a risk assessment that was carried out. And, you know, so you get your... Shield. I don't know if you've seen them. So the shield that goes on like that, um, and obviously you get disinfect um, antibacterial gel. You might as well just bring your own, you know. And there's wipes so that children can wipe down the surfaces, and you can wipe down your surfaces and stuff like that. So it really is an adjustment. So it's not just uncertain for the young people; it's also uncertain for staff as well, and. All schools are having outbreaks because it's not something that you can contain. You know, you're trying your best, but people are outside of school as well, mixing with other people and stuff like that. And it's, it's very, it's, it's a spreadable <laughs> infection. So it's easy to spread. And so you have the outbreaks. And if you are a teacher that has taught a student that has tested positive, you know, you, had, you have to go home. You have to isolate and then you have to get a test and then you have to wait anxiously for those results to come back and then you're isolated because you don't want your family around you because you don't know if you have COVID-19 or not. And I experienced that just last week. So I went in on Monday, a child had had tested for COVID, received an email, I'd gone in and as I'm leaving to go out the door, you know, I've, I've been told... Can you cover your lessons? Of course I can cover my lessons from my house. <laughs> of course I can. So obviously, because you're still expected, your classes still need to be covered. And the thing is, you feel a bit guilty because although I don't have COVID-19 and I was willing and ready and able to work on Monday, 
but as something out of my own control with a student, you then have to go home. So then you still have to prepare your lessons because teachers are teaching your classes and you don't want them to miss out on any more learning. So you're sending in proper proper lessons that they, that you would I would teach myself. Talk, talk to me through the emotions that you were feeling when you you were told that the, the child had COVID and you had to self-isolate. Well, the thing was, it was, it was like a China guessing game, right? Because I was in briefing and you're hearing that the child has it and like you're wondering. So then you go back into the, the office and I'm looking around at the, the teacher. So I'm wondering who, it, you know, like who teaches this young person because you know who's in and who's not and you know why. But then like, I was like, let me just check my email. And I checked, <laughs> I checked my email and it was me. And I, I read the email out to the rest of the teachers in there. And they were like, you've got to go home. And I'm like, yeah, I've just, I've just, I've just got to go home. Like, do you see the smile on my face? <laughs> <I'm> like, okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, because what can I do? I'm, it's Monday. I'm up. I was having an observation for a period as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm wanting this to happen. And now you're, you're sending me home. But the good thing was I'd already sent my PowerPoint over to my line manager so she could see what my lesson was going to be like anyway. So, um, and then you go and you have to go home and you just, you know, and then obviously the senior leaders, obviously they're emailing to make sure that things are okay. And, you know, um, one was surprised that I was, I had ordered a test already, but HR had already let them know that I'd been in contact with somebody because I'm vulnerable. So it wasn't hard for me to get my test. It came the next day um, and it came on Tuesday. And then by Thursday, the results after the close of business had come through. And it was a relief to know that you don't have it because my family went around. Like that because you do, and the thing is, I'd had you know my family over on Sunday, and to know that now on Monday, because there was a child in my class that I could possibly have it, a lot of emotions, a lot of emotions go through. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely, it's scary, isn't it? Um, especially because you've got like health conditions in the past. You know, I mean, it's it's quite a scary thing. And, in, in, in some ways, it must be quite scary going back after that as well because you just negative, didn't you? And, and it's like, well, I've just negative. It means I can probably get, get I can actually get it still. So you're still kind of feeling anxiety about going in. And, um, and, and, it's, and it's like you've got a moral obligation as a teacher to, to sort of educate your, your students. And it's, it's almost like you're, you're balancing your life with your profession. And it's like, what did you do? And, and especially for anybody that's looking to get into teaching now, I mean, how scary is it going to be for them to, to get into the profession, you know? I mean, do you, do you feel like more could be done from either the schools or from the government, like to protect teachers or to, to support teachers and, and, and the students in, it in a different way? Like, what, what could be done? I do understand about the economy and I do understand about keeping schools open. I, I definitely do understand that. But it felt in the beginning that we're just glory, teachers are just glorified babysitters so that parents and parents and carers can go to work and then you've got your child situated there. And it, it, they made the profession seem that we were um, unable to catch COVID. 
you know, we like got some superhuman powers, like teachers have superhuman powers that COVID goes past you. And it doesn't. And it, it is, you are anxious. And the anxiety takes a toll in a different way because in our English office, which is a fantastic office, we're able to bounce off each other. You know, when someone's feeling low or, you know, we talk through things, we are our, our support network. You know, and I think that being in a school where that happens is invaluable because I also know what it's like when you work in a school and people are cliquey and there's a divide. So it's real nice in our office. So as we're all, you know, educators in different in different forms, it's nice to be able to speak about different things that we can do. What, of course, the government could do more. We already know that it's about the economy. We already know that it's about it sounds real horrible, but what do we really care about the, the, the working class? You know, because we knew that Eton, Eton, and other schools, they weren't going back at all, and that they were only going to have online lessons. We knew this because we, as you know, you think about well, hmm, that that prime, that minister that member of parliament's child goes to a private school. So what's that private school doing? completely the opposite of what they're doing for state schools so get in there get in there do do what you have to do because you're exempt as a teacher it doesn't it doesn't get you and I just felt like it's very blase because we are humans and we are valuable not just to the school but to our own families you know and I just felt I just feel that I understand that they're saving, they're safeguarding the children, obviously, so that the children are static, so that we're key stage three, so that there's not a lot of movement. But I don't think they really thought about the impact that it has on the teachers, having to move from class to class to class to class, having been used to one classroom. So you have your laptop, you have your pens, you have a, like a crate that you're dragging with you everywhere that you go. And it just feels... Yes, you're having to go with the flow because you have no other choice. But how comfortable is it? It's not because I'm stepping into a classroom that a teacher's already been in as well. And you don't know who that teacher's mixed with in their previous lesson. So you, you don't really know. It's like potluck, really. You don't really know what's going to happen. But you just say, well, do you know what? God be with me. <laughs> and I'm going to go. And I'm just going to hopefully come home with no COVID-19 symptoms because that's all you can do really that's all and what's what's the general consensus within schools and within the teacher community like how do they feel about everything that's gone on and the way that they've been treated through this pandemic you know and I know that already if you're already dissatisfied with the way things are moving in a school, something like this will just compound it even more. Um, so I just think that a lot of teachers are, are not liking what is happening. We're, you know, we're all alert, but we have no choice because this is our profession. This is, we are government employees, you know, so we are paid by DfE. So you have to go and do what you need to do. But as individuals and human beings, you have to safeguard your own self. If you don't feel well, you don't, you, don't, you don't go to work. You have to put yourself first. Because if you don't put yourself first, 
it could have such a detrimental effect on the students, yourself, your colleagues, your family. And I think that the pandemic has shown me that it's not worth, if you don't, like usually when you don't feel well, you'll still drag yourself in to work. We all, we all do, you know this already. We drag, you know, you don't make a phone call unless you're really not really well. But I just think now where health is such a big issue and people are dying. I've, I've lost an uncle from, who died from COVID-19. So, you know, it, it affects families. It affects you. So for me, if I don't feel well or I don't need to be in, I'm not going to be in because I have my own children. I have a life outside of teaching. Teaching is just one part of my life, you know, and you have to get this work-life balance. You have some people who are not vulnerable. So they don't see it the same way that I see it. They're, they're, they're okay to be there. They don't see what the fuss is. But unless you have a health condition or you live with somebody that has a health condition, you won't really understand. There's a lot of teachers that are not part of the ethnic minority groups that are hit more by COVID-19. We, you've seen the data already. You know, black males are, are getting COVID-19 a lot more than other males. You know that the BME community are, are, are able to, are getting it more, COVID-19 more, because of the systematic racism and institutional racism that happens. And so a lot of them don't go to the hospital because they're scared of the hospitals. They're scared of what will happen once they go into the hospitals. So they don't go, so that they stay home. And I just feel that unless those points are going to be addressed in the political arena, we're always going to have problems because there's, like I said, systematic racism, institutional racism has to be addressed for things to change. And it comes from the top down, starting with government because they're, they're the employees. You have to recognise, you know? And how difficult is it to, to know that you're employed for, for certain people that upset you in some ways? Because obviously you're quite passionate about it, aren't you? I mean, it's quite distressing, obviously, um, the way that you're feeling. And um, how, how difficult is it to still be able to get up in the morning and know that you've got a duty of care to these children, you know? Because it, it's difficult, isn't it? When, when you're working for someone that you don't necessarily believe in anymore, and I'm not talking about your current school, I'm talking about as, as the government, you know, and, and you effectively are, are servants of, of the public, aren't you? And you've got a moral duty to care for the public and, and especially those ones that are from deprived backgrounds. Those children need it even more, right? I mean, you've seen it. And, and it's, it's bad because like this pandemic has made the gap between the, the sort of really um, disadvantaged and the advantage even bigger, you know? And, yeah. And even more than ever, we need teachers, you know, and, and it's hard because you, you one side, you've got a, a, a prospective employer that's, that's um, you're not too fond of. And then the other aspect is like, you know what, I've got to make a difference to these kids. I mean, how do you separate these emotions and still get up for work every morning? Again, I have to, I really have to go back that I, I, I love what I do. Like, I, I really love the fact that I'm, I'm there and I'm educating the masses. I love that. That's what drives me um, to get up and go and teach and be the best teacher that I can be. And additionally, I have, I have three kids and they finished school now, but I wanted to be the teacher that they would have had at school as well. So that's what drives me because we have a lot of teachers who don't care. You have that. They're there for the, for the holidays or they're there for the paycheck because it is a profession where you can rise and make money. 
yeah? So they're not there. But me as an educator, I'm there for them. I told them, you need to look at me and know that I'm there for you because I say to the students that what I don't understand is, is why you're trying to treat me as a teacher who doesn't care about you. And when you pose questions like that to them, you let it resonate. They will come to, you know, they'll come to a natural conclusion. Like, why am I doing that? Because Miss has, Miss has my back. And that's, what it, that's all it is. You've got problematic students and labelled students. And sometimes the label should or shouldn't be there. But it's down to individual teachers to make a positive impact for these young people. Because I'm sure at school, when you was at school, you remember a teacher that you liked. That was really there for you. What was it about that teacher? They wanted to come to work. They came to work every day. Like their energy was positive. They made it as engaging as they could do for learning. You felt from them that they genuinely cared about you. And that's what the difference is. Yes, it's about teaching, but I'm an educator. And I've had to educate. And it's about, you give yourself. Like, you've got year sevens who are so needy. They've come back in, you know, that transition period. You know, so then you have to start balancing them out for them to know how it is different at, at secondary school. You have year nines who are transitioning, who've transitioned from year eight to year nines, who already are going through bodily transitions too. Mind is all over the place. So they need that calming influence. I've had students who've like missed, like they, they want to, to hug me and you, you, you're not allowed to, as you know. Um, so you stand there and you're like, no, well, you know, no contact. And they'll be like, but miss. So then you know what, you just might put a hand on the shoulder or on the arm just to let them know that, yeah, I know that you're good. Because you, it's about energy. It, it's just about knowing. Think about if you have a friend and you know that that friend is there for you. You know that you can go and speak to that friend and that friend is going to give you sound, solid advice. Think about to another friend who you know you're not really going to get what you need from that friend. They're just two different. They're just two different people. But you know who you will go to more. The kids need it. I don't discriminate against any child. Like a child is a child. A student is a student. And I'm there to have that impact on that on that child. Um, an example is I have a, a year ten student and um, death in the family. But before the death occurred, like in assembly, it was like, this child is going through this. And if this child wants to leave class and go and see Miss Johnson, which is me, let them go. So it's nice to be recognised that that child feels so comfortable with the amount of teachers that's in the school that has that affinity with me. And and if they felt that they needed to leave the class, they could come and talk to me. I mean... that's just wonderful if you you know what I mean it's just it's just wonderful yeah absolutely I mean you're the the children that you work with at the moment what like in terms of obviously we've spoken about sort of disadvantaged families right and uh have you some of the students that you work with I mean are, are some of them from disadvantaged backgrounds definitely yeah so just in terms of those those children how much impact has the no free school meals. Obviously, there's this massive campaign about Rashford and um, sort of sec- yeah, encouraging the government to do a U-turn on the decision. Um, sure. And obviously, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak yesterday said um, 
we're not gonna we're not gonna go back on a decision. We've, we've given 63 million to the council and the council have said, well, look, it's not enough, you know, like we've only had a certain amount of time that we can carry that through. Um, like how important is it for these families to receive those free lunches? Because you know, every year it's it's they don't receive free school meals, do they? Over the holidays they don't, right? Um, but why is it that much more crucial for them to receive those free school meals this year? Because as you know, there's so many people that have been furloughed. There's so many people that have had to apply for universal credit. You know, incomes that were up are now down. Like the, the whole, there's been a shift in family dynamics. And the children need, so I had, I was a designated teacher of looked after children during the lockdown. And um, one carer, a grandmother she um wasn't able to get her vouchers like she couldn't do it like she'd spoken to certain social workers and stuff like that and wasn't able to get it that but because I know how important it is because she says I, I would have to go without you know so that if I have to use my own money these these vouchers are there they should they should be used so obviously you know did the emails what needed to do did a chase up to find out you know and got back to her and told her it should all be sorted out now. This is the person that you need to contact. It's about helping. Uh, I, like I say, I'm a designated teacher of lack and teacher of English. But as a human being, I understand how hard it is being in a household because I know this. Your children are home and they're eating more because you're providing breakfast, lunch, dinner. And snacks in between. Whereas on a school day, you might provide breakfast or they might come to breakfast club. There's a lunch provided, whether free school meals or paying lunches. And then you might only have to really provide dinner and maybe snacks. So you can imagine the impact on people's pockets when you have to then find this extra money. And imagine it's two kids or three kids and they're growing and, you know, like, what they like, what boys are like when they get between the ages of 12 and 14, like they, they just grow and grow and the girls are growing. So you understand the impact. But it's not, I just didn't think it was the free school meals. I, I think to go back to a question that you said before, what I believe the government should have done was every household that has universal credit or receiving universal credit, they should have dropped a laptop or a Chromebook to them because what we found was a lot of students were not able to access their homework on Show My Homework. One, some of them didn't even have Wi-Fi. Two, there might only be one laptop and you're the youngest, you, your siblings will, will have preference over you, or there's no laptop at home and you're doing it off your phone. And it highlighted deprivation that there is because we go home and you, you your internet's free, you know, not free, but it's running, you don't think about it, you pay your bill, you move on, you have a device. But these kids don't. And when I went back into school, in case we went into another lockdown, I actually did, a, for my tutor group, I actually did a, um, a hands up what, who would be able to, who has access to a device. So if we were to go in lockdown, who has access? And out of, I don't know, 25, 26 students, 10, 10 didn't have access to a device. I've had, 
Out of how many, sorry? 10. Out of how many? About 22, 23. It's insane, isn't it? It's, you, I mean, anyone that's kind of been a you know, working class, middle class, and obviously and above, you kind of just expect Wi-Fi to be the common thing now, don't you? And it's, it, it, for some people, it's hard to imagine that they, they go home and they don't have access to these, to these basic resources that you would think are basic resources, you know? And it's, it's mind-boggling why in a, we're a first-world country. And in a first-world country, there's, people, there's children going without food, don't have access to resources like internet or laptops or being able to do work from home. And, and, and it, it's, it's, it's massive, the impact that it's going to have, not only on these children, but our future of our economy, you know? Um, and, and the bridge between the, the disadvantage and the advantage is just going to keep getting bigger. Like, how do we solve this problem? You solve this problem by using the taxpayer's money back in the working class. Because we're all taxpayers. There's not one of us here who's working who's not a taxpayer. Remember, they proportion out our money and they take it to central government and then they distribute it like it was theirs in the first place. But it's actually the people's. And most people in any arena who has sense and has understood the impact of this pandemic would know that the kids need resources which would be a laptop, rather than spending all this money on track and trace that didn't work or sending it to bogus companies that they've done, like a, a sweetie factory with their manufacturing PPE or something like that, which was under the which was, was was nothing. Why don't you invest back into the schools? Why don't you why don't you invest into the people who need it? We're all taxpayers, this is my money. And I would like my money to go into schools so that a child can have a laptop in their household and Wi-Fi. Take some of that money that you were spending, that vast amount of money, and have allowed people to have internet access. You could have done that. But this is capitalism. And I don't mean, you know, but it's capitalism at, at, at its finest. Because the poor are, the, as you said, the, the, the gulf is just getting wider and wider and wider. And how, how, how do we circumvent that? Investing. You have these lovely buildings. You have these, you know, teachers, senior leaders who earn really big money. But some of those monies could really be back invested into the children. Because if, if there's no children, you can't have any teachers. <laughs> it's not one or the other. You need the children to teach and you need the teachers to teach the children. So you need to invest in, in your schools, that's what the government needs to do, need to invest in their schools and stop pretending that there's no rift, that they're doing the best that they can do and that they've got the best interests of working class at heart because you don't. Something so simple as free school meals, something so simple as Rashford has had to go through this big campaign, the government feel no shame whatsoever in saying no. How many voted against... Ex- against extending the free school meals but they didn't think of the backlash because you this country is not a third world country and yet you're allowing only certain members of your population to starve it's not all the population certain members of the population to starve. but that's what happens under a conservative government and everyone everyone knew this you know that that is that is the tory policy and so 
whilst we have a Tory government, you can only hope that they're going to look at the workers, they're going to look at the schools, they're going to look at the children, and they're going to do the right thing by them. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it's worrying, isn't it? Because you, you look at what the government has done, the big businesses, they've obviously stepped in, put in furlough, they had the help to eat out scheme, um, to, to basically encourage people to go out and spend money. And, um, and, and so they're, they're willing to do these things for big businesses. And it's the, it's the real disadvantaged families that unfortunately are getting overlooked, aren't they? It's basically what you're saying. And it's, it's, it's astonishing because, like, like I said, if we're in a first world country and these kids need to be protected, they need, they need access to education. These are basic, simple things, you know. And um, it, must, it must be so difficult as a teacher to be spending time with these kids, to go home to the life that you have, knowing that these kids um, don't have access to Wi-Fi and, and, and a hot meal, you know. I mean, how do you separate your personal feelings from, from the time that you leave the school to when you go home? I mean, how hard is it not to think about those kids? I mean, it's. I think sometimes you, you have to proportion out what what what's what's really going on here, and the only thing that I can do actively is to be able to help the young people that need to be helped at that given time, and that might be I might be limited in what I can do as a designated teacher of black. I had more. Um, I was able to do more with that role than as a teacher of English, but as an academic tutor, like I highlight. Like I have to send it on to the pastoral side, things that I think like, like I said, the nine, 10 kids that don't have, that wouldn't have laptops. Like they have to let them, you, you have to let them know so that they can do something about it. You know, it's, it's, it was an eye opener. I, I, and, I, and I just have to say that to you because although I work in a London school, you see the kids all the time, but this pandemic has really highlighted the disparity that is between the class system. It, it really has, and that is the working class who are suffering because how, how is it possible not, you can't feed your kids? How is it possible that you're losing the roof over your head, not because of your own self, but because of COVID and you're not able to pay your bills? How is that? So I, I think it's more than just a school issue, obviously, it's a government issue. And until the status quo changes, this is, this is what it's going to be like. I do what I can do to help my students and the students that I come into contact with because I'm limited in terms of what I can do because I don't have resources for the school myself personally. You know, So you rely on the school to, to pick that up and do what they can do for the young people. Because it is, it is very difficult. It is, it is very difficult. It's, it, it's very difficult. Or, like you know, when the government wanted to take away the oyster cards for the young people, and you're thinking, how? Because how's the parents? It's the taxpayers' money. First of all, that's paying for the oyster cards. It's my money. I'd rather it go there than anywhere else. And and the impact that it will have if parents have to then start paying travel for their children to get to colleges or to get to schools, all those things. It's those things that we need to look at. Those, those are the, the issues. So any petition that comes out 
saving this or saving that, especially the Oyster cards, I definitely signed them because I feel that we have to do, we have to come as a collective and do what's right for our young people because people don't, don't, some people don't need the Oyster card because they might have drivers or they have a parent that drives them or they, someone picks them up. But for the majority of students who have to get on the bus, they need the Oyster cards to get on the bus and some students are coming from borough to borough so they need to get on a train. They need those things. I think what the school should have done was given free school um, breakfast. I think they should have opened that up to make sure students are eating without having to pay for it. I think that that was one of the initiatives that they, they should have done as a whole school, that give free breakfast. Because I think it's important. Like, the kids need it. And already deprived. It's hard when you're going into a school and you, you, you haven't eaten from home and then maybe you're not eating until break time or lunchtime. At least if you give them some food, like breakfast, sets them up for the day, and they're ready to learn. If you can't learn on an empty stomach. How much, how much do you notice when, well, how much do you notice if, uh, in, in a child's attitude when they haven't eaten? But is it, is it quite recognisable? Well, they're ignorant. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to put it to you like that. Think about when you're hungry. Think about how you behave. It's the same behaviours as these are human beings. So they exhibit the same behaviour. And you pick up and then you're like, or they're, 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 they're lightheaded or they're fade or their head is on the table and it's like, why is your head on the table? Is there a medical issue here? And they're like, no, but then you, you pull them aside and you're like, what's your issue? What's happened? And they're like, well, they haven't eaten. So the first thing is like, well, why, why are you not eating? Because your, your parents are paying for you to have a school lunch so, or you're getting school lunches. Why are you eating? And it could be a lot of stuff, like they don't like the food or there's something or... If you run up a debt at school and you haven't paid for your lunches, you can't get your lunch. And I think school debts run up easy for lunches. Lunch now is like £12 a week, I think. And if you have two children and you're paying for lunches, that's already £24 for the week times four. Like It starts mounting up because we don't always know what's going on in in the child's household. The child doesn't say until maybe things come to a head or a parent lets you know, but people are really struggling. Like they were struggling before the pandemic. And so compound that now with the pandemic, it's even more. And, it, and it's hard. It's hard. You think about the domestic abuse that has, you know, risen and the steps that have taken. We don't know what these young people are going through. You know, you don't know. So, again, you have to like children <laughs> in order to do this job effectively. You have to be able to have a sense of empathy. And I know not everybody's empathetic, but you have a sense of looking at that child and knowing, well, something's not quite right. And the kid likes to know that you've noticed them. Not, you know... Obviously, you don't do it publicly because it's, it's the private matters. And you speak to them and you're like, you know, what is it? Like, well, how are you feeling? Like, what's going on? And stuff like that. And obviously, they disclose and you have to disclose. But it's, it's, it's a minefield out there for them. And they're already at that ages where they're so vulnerable, as it is already, to have mental health issues or to have, you know, there's problems at home. There's not enough food. 
because mainly it's about being not enough food in your household, you know, and it's quite hard to fathom that at times. It really is. It's, it's sad, really. Yeah. It's, it's insane, isn't it? I mean, why is it that much more important for people to get into teaching? Why do we need more people to think, you know what, I'm going to go get a degree and then come out of university and go get a PDC so I can really support the future generation? Why is it that much more important now? It's so worthwhile. It is a vocation. Teaching is a vocation, you know, and I have to say that it is not easy and every day brings something different. But the skill set that you learn and what you can impart to a young child is just an amazing thing. I love the fact that I'm, I'm gearing, you know, especially key stage four, you're gearing them up to go out into this world, whether stay on at sixth form or actually go to other colleges. Like you're gearing them up and you're, you're, you want them to be the best version of themselves at any given time. And you want them to be educated. My remit is, I don't care whether you like me or not. I'm here to teach you because you need these skills and I have these skill sets. So you can't talk when I'm talking because I have the skill set and I want to give it to you. I don't want to hold it and, and it's a secret and I'm only going to drip it to you like that. I actually want you to, ha- to have it because I know what it's like to be so disadvantaged, yeah, to have to be considered other different categories and stuff like that. It's, it's important to come in and know that you're going to make a difference. That could be a future MP. You know, it could be a doctor, it could be a lawyer, it could be, you know, an entrepreneur, it could be financial advisor. You're shaping these young people's lives. How, how could you not want to do that? How, how could you look at it and be like, no, no, this is so important. Think about the inspirational people that have shaped your own lives. That's what you need to think about. And think about teachers that you've had that were like that and other teachers that you had that were great. And, and pick which one that you want to be. And I just say, if you're coming into teaching, coming with an open heart, they're not easy and they don't trust. And the reason that the children don't trust is because there's a high turnover of staff. So they don't trust. So you have to build. You, you, some teachers think you're going to step in and, yay, I'm here. And the kids are going to be like, yay, no. <laughs> No, it's a building, trusting relationship, you know. And I think if you have those qualities and you love what you do and you're passionate about what you do and you're passionate about young people and shaping their future and investing time in them, it's so worthwhile. I I can't say anymore. I've been in education for a long time and you know me, I'm still the same. I have the same passion <laughs> that I had when you first met me. I love it. I do. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, obviously, I've spoken to so many teachers over the last six years, and there's 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 a point in a, in a teacher's career that they get to about three four years, and they decide whether they're going to stay in teaching or not. And there's some teachers that you like leave in the fourth year after after qualifying, and um, it's a shame, isn't it? Because some it can be difficult. I think the, the major challenges are like sort of dealing with behaviour and um, yeah. progression and the feeling yeah. appreciated within schools. And those are the things that have caused a lot of movement in the past when I'm speaking to teachers, you know, and or not getting the progression that they feel they deserve. Or I mean, it's but you know, the, the, the thing is, 
what I think it's important to remind everyone that happens in every profession, you know, there's a lot of being undervalued. There's a lot of being not appreciated or not getting the money you want or, you know, and it's, it's, it's teaching. Unfortunately is one of those professions where it gets scrutinized. It comes under heat quite a lot. Right. And it's undervalued for the, for the level of work you have to do. It is massively undervalued in terms of people's opinions. And in some respects, people believe in monetary terms as well, you know, and Um, but it's it's about making that difference, isn't it? Unfortunately, you work for the public, you work with the taxpayers' money, don't you? And and it's public money, which is quite limited, you know? And, uh, but ultimately, the future of our economy depends on, on obviously getting more teachers in because there are a lot of teachers leaving the industry, you know, and we need more teachers that, that care about these kids that want to make a difference like you, Judith. And and it's, it's, it's a shame because it's not, it's like you don't go into uni like thinking, oh, I want to, I want to go become a teacher. You know, I mean, if if I could go back ten years, you know what, I'd, I'd heavily consider it. I, I genuinely, I may not have gone into recruitment because I had a really good experience mm. with thirty kids on an enrichment day last week, and and it's so rewarding when you get that. That I mean, it was scary as hell, but when, yeah. but getting that that conversation where you've actually made an impact on somebody is is it's so rewarding, you know. And I mean, I just hope more more and more people get into it because. Like I said, our, the future of our economy depends on it. And there's, there's challenges that you've spoken about and you, you've obviously spoken about things that you've overcome in your personal life as well as your professional life. And um, you're still here today, you know, and you're still making a difference for these kids. And, and it's yeah. remarkable. Like, you're, you're a remarkable lady, you know. And um, yeah. it, like it, the, 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 kid, the, the students that are doing the teacher training at the moment, those ones that are looking to get into doing the PGC next year, what, what advice would you give them? Do you know what? Do it. Do it. And but make sure you're qualifying, you're doing your PGC and in what you want to do. So don't don't be an English teacher if you know that your passion is maths. Now that might sound real silly, but people then become teachers in what they're not passionate about. And you can tell. So you come in and you're so excited, and then this child is really giving you a hard time. But they're testing you. Just in all, they're, they're young people, they're testing and, and they have trust issues. And I think you cannot take it personal. Yes, it might be coming at you and directed at you like it's personal. But the thing never to do is never to engage in a battle in the class with a child. My advice would be always say to the child, if you want to have a conversation with me, we can have a, you, can, you can discuss with this with me outside. And the child will take you up on that. So there's no public, no one's losing face. The child goes outside, you have a conversation with the child and you say, like, what's up? You know, what's going on? Like, what is this? And they will explain themselves and then you will have a dialogue because it's about having a dialogue. It's not about shouting and I'm, I've got the power and I'm going to your... No. Talk to the young people. They're not, they're not often talked to. They're talked at. Remember, think about teaching. You're talking at them. At, 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 talk to them. And when you talk to them, you'd, you'd find out so much amazing things. It's like I have a, I had a child that I taught last year and you know, I just said to her, like, like the class, like, what do you do in your spare time? And she's an acrobat. In the circus. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. But that's because you have conversations and then you get everybody involved, like, what do you do? It makes it more human and you're building up such a rapport 
that the kids are eager to come to your class. Like they want to come. Like I have students who I taught last year, I'm not teaching this year. They're like, they're trying to get back into my classroom. I have to stop them from coming into my door. You know, like, no, your teacher's looking for you. Now, for me, that's real nice because they're seeing the genuine article of me as a teacher. I'm firm but fair. You know, I don't, I don't tolerate nonsense. Like, we're going to be respectful. It's a formal establishment in which we are working in. They're not allowed to speak slang. They're not allowed to come in. This is my rule. They're not allowed to speak slang. They're not allowed to come in with picks in their hair. They're not allowed to brush their hair in my class. You're not allowed to do anything apart from sit there and learn because I don't understand why you're doing that. And when you say to the young person, like, why, why are you combing your hair? Because there's no breeze in the classroom. There's no breeze that took your hair away. So why are you combing it? I have to think about that. Well, why am I combing my hair? Because there's not, what, it's about making them think about and being responsible for their own actions. And it's about making them regulate themselves. We're not here to be like, I'm in control. You're going to do as I say, because they have that enough. We all have that enough. It is about establishing relationships where the child is working for themselves. Obviously, they think they're working for you, but they're really working for themselves to achieve at the ending of year 11, their GCSE results that's going to take them into the next phase of their life. That's what teaching is about, making sure they achieve. Because you know that I had a child and um, on the SEN, social emotional behavior, and I look past that, you know, worked with him solidly. Trust me, we're going to get where you need to go. Now we're year 11. He says, Miss, thank you. He says, you told me to trust you. And I trusted you. That's it. Because I said to him, what's my, what's my biggest thing that I want for you? He says, for me to do well. I don't want anything else. Just want you to do well because it's your future. Remember, these are young people that are going in and that are going to be bringing money into the economy. They themselves are going to be parents. You need to be as educated as you can so that you can educate your child as much as you can. It's a knock-on effect. So yes, for the economy, but procreation, because if you don't procreate, you know, have no children, there can't be no teachers. There's no teachers. So it's about investing in them, giving them the skills that they need and the confidence that they need to be better versions of themselves. And it's not easy. It's not easy. But every child is different. I don't hold anything against any child. They're young people. You know, I come in, every child that comes into my lesson, they come in, I'm as, I'm as excited to see them as I was first period. This could be sixth period. I'm still excited to see them. I'm tired, but I'm still excited to see them. And that's what they need. They look forward to coming in because English could be very dry sometimes, as you know. Yeah? And it could be boring. And it's how you engage with them. And discussion. Kids like to discuss. They don't have enough discussion and discussion based, obviously controlled. And I've taught my young people the art of debating. It might sound like how you're teaching them the art of debating, but they just talk over each other. No one listens. But with debating, you have to take your time and listen to what the other person is saying and come back with ideas. And so that's what it's about. It's about looking at them and knowing that you're investing in their future and that you are helping them on their academic journey for the rest of their 
keep further and higher, higher and further education. And that's what makes me smile every day. Fantastic. No, it's just amazing, Judith. I mean, uh, thank you so much for taking time out and speaking on, obviously, the podcast. I mean, you're, you're a remarkable woman. You know, you, you've obviously, you love doing what you do, and that's not changed at all with the, the whole three years that I've known you. And, uh, you. You make such a positive difference in your kids. I know, obviously, you've showed me emails that you have for kids and, um, and, and the difference that you make to them. So just keep doing what you're doing, you know. Uh, thank you for all the hard work you do. You know, like the teachers are massively underappreciated right now and um but this is the whole point of this podcast you know to create awareness for the, the hard work you guys are doing and um just want to say thank you you know i just want to say thank you as well i, I just want to say thank you from 2017 thank you from all the times that you know because you've been on the other end like you've been on the other end the phone when i've called up and i'm like i'm not doing this like this is too much and i'm giving it to you because i just need to offload and then I'm fine. And then the next day we're fine, we're back to normal. So it's not that we don't have wobbles. Of course we have wobbles in, our, in, in, our, in any profession. But you just have to know why you're doing what you're doing. And our young people are the next generation that are, that are going to be the prime ministers and they're going to be the doctors and these professions. And they need the best start that they possibly can. And if you're a teacher and you want to go into teaching and you know that you want to facilitate that, then you're going to go into the right profession. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Judith. We'll leave it there. I mean, you, you've said exactly what we needed to, for you to say, really, and hopefully that encourages graduates and people that are sort of like leaving school and thinking about what they want to do with their career. And um, hopefully that encourages more people to look at teaching as a profession that they can do and make a difference to the future generation. And hopefully we get more teachers like you from, from these podcasts, you know? Uh, yeah, awesome. yeah, really well done. Thank you for coming on. And, um, thank you. Yeah, obviously, like like as always, if you need anything, I'm always here for you. But yeah, I mean, thank you so much for coming on and taking some time out to speak to me. My pleasure. And I thank you. And I just hope that I can help any which way. No worries. Have a good evening. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you everyone for watching this week's episode and thank you Judith for coming on. Um, guys, if you did like the episode, as usual, please give us a like and a subscribe. Obviously it goes a long, long way. Um, yeah, thank you very much and uh, see you in the next episode.